one of the, I don't know about you, but I just think it's lovely. This, this story of Jesus sitting on the beach with his, with his disciples and making breakfast. I mean, I already talked about that with the kids, and, and you've all, all overheard that. But I just, I think it's a beautiful picture of the regathering. To think about, this is a story that forms the imagination of the earliest gatherings of Christians in, in this movement that we've come to call Christianity. And one of the earliest stories that forms our imagination is a story of gathering around a charcoal fire on a beach with Jesus, eating fish and bread. And Jesus saying, feed my sheep. It's significant that in this story, Jesus asks the question to Simon Peter three times. You all can probably figure out why that's significant. Anyone want to volunteer that? Why is it significant that Jesus would ask three times? Jim. Because Peter, as we read all together uh, on Passion Sunday, Peter, though he told Jesus in that upper room, Jesus, I'll never, I'll never deny you. I'll never distance myself from you. He went ahead and denied him three times. I don't know this man. Stop associating me with him. And here's Jesus asking him three times, Simon, do you love me? You love me. And Peter's getting pretty frustrated by the end. It's like, perhaps he's realizing that there's significance in this third question. And it's his heart drops as he realizes how much in that moment of stress and distraction, in that moment of fear, how much he was willing to lie about. We have another character in our readings today in the book of Acts by the name of Saul. And Saul is another interesting character because he also, he kind of takes the cake. And he says this himself later on when he writes to the churches. He says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners among whom I am the chief. And I wonder... If when he's thinking about that, and I don't doubt it, because he made mention of it earlier, he's thinking of this pinnacle of his career as a radical rabbi in Palestine in the first century. Paul, or Saul, as, as, as he becomes uh, known as Paul later, but Saul is like the brightest of the bright students, kind of Harvard-educated, if you think of it. I'm going to use Harvard, not Yale, okay? Um, Harvard-educated. And he is schooled by the best rabbi of that day and just has all the credentials. He's just a shining star of students and has all the pedigree of just the next great leader 
he might be running for president, you know, that, no, they, don't, they weren't doing that, but uh, he might join the long list of people running. But Paul, or Saul at the time, he's not, he, does, he, he has this, this goal, this ambition, but it's based on a false sense of what's real and true. And what does it lead him to? He becomes the great persecutor of the early Christian movement. We have a picture in Acts chapter 7 of this same Saul, the same one that you know so well, overseeing the stoning of one of the first very openly vocal witness to the resurrection of Jesus, Stephen. Stephen was stoned under the watch, under the authority of this bright and shining Saul of Tarsus. And it gets me thinking, here we have Peter in his worst moment, when he could have been the friend that he thought he was. And he, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus in those final hours. We have Saul, who is determined to be the best person he can be by all the religious standards that he thinks he understands. Paul is going to be the best, most faithful follower of Torah that he can be. People like Peter and Saul, whose ambition is to do the right thing and be the right way. And how does that get twisted so horribly? One of the phrases I learned in, in, in theology class was, I'm going to mess it up. Corruptio optimum pessimi. And that's Latin. And what it means is the corruption. No, corruptio. Yeah, corruptio optimum pessimi. The corruption of the best is the worst. And that's a truth, a, a deeply human truth, that is worth sitting with. And one of the things that I think we have to realize is that the difference that Jesus makes is not in giving us more, more power or information along the same line of our goals and purposes for the sake of our our personal survival or competitive achievement uh, in any of the domains where we live, whether that's the job or school or political or economic or, or family realms where we live, or even spiritual realms. I mean, goodness gracious, Christians can be some of the most competitive and, um, and, and proud people, can't we? 
can't we? You've experienced some in yourself, probably, <laughs> inevitably, and in others. Where what Eugene Peterson says, the church should be a hospital. And yet we have this tendency to contract hospital-born illnesses. Hospital-born illnesses. And I think that you can see this in in the life of Saul. You can see this in the life of Peter. That when you're trying to do right, you're trying to be good, and you're doing it out of this motivation that comes from deep within us, oh my goodness, from earlier than my son's age, we want to please, we want to be in right relationship. And yet, when that becomes the only way that we can relate to the world, when we don't find that that is insufficient, we can turn religion into a monstrous institution. And that's exactly what Saul did. He turned his religion into a monstrous institution in his own person, in the way he related to other people, in the stoning of Stephen, in the imprisoning of all kinds of people who just wanted to go out there and say, Jesus is resurrected. <laughs> Jesus is the fulfillment of so much that has been promised us. Please listen. Please see that Jesus is this way forward. So what is the difference that Jesus makes? I want, to, I want to use a technical term here. We, as human beings, live in a world of dualism. Dualism. And dualism comes from the word dual. Two. We are a people that tend to think in black and white. You've heard that expression. We tend to think in all or nothing. We tend to think in either or. Dualism. That's one of the one of the reasons why our political system is so messed up. Because we're we're dedicated to two parties. We're addicted to either or. The difference that Jesus makes, the difference that Jesus makes is a confounding of dualism. And we see this in the way that Saul and Simon Peter change. You see, Simon Peter can only imagine a world in which he's either okay, okay, nothing really bad happened, or I'm just going to go back to fishing, I give up. Saul can only live in the reality of either this new Jesus movement is a threat to the, to the integrity of the people of God. Or it's true, and it can't be true, and so therefore it's a threat. Jesus turns it around and he says... Paul, you are persecuting not some group. You are persecuting me. P- 
Peter, Jesus turns around and says to Simon Peter, there's a third way. And that third way, Simon, is the way of forgiveness. It's a third way. It's a way that, like last week we talked about, we talked about truth. Being willing to live, see, open our eyes and our hearts to the full truth about ourselves and about the world. Jesus is saying, there's a truth about you that breaks through all of the either-ors. Luther once famously said that we are simul justus et peccator, another Latin expression, simultaneously saint and sinner. That in God's abundant, unconditional love, you are not an either saint or a sinner. You are not perfect or horrible. You are not right or wrong. You are human. And in your humanness, you are someone who is in transformation, who is one always changing, always becoming, and always in a deeper level, your, your identity is of a child of God. That is a both and identity. You are both the person that you have been and the person you will become. You are both the person that you really don't want to admit you are and you are beloved and welcome at the table. Jesus invites us into a deeper reality which confounds and confuses our, in, our stubborn categories. In, out, right, wrong. With it, not with it. Good, terrible. And Jesus says, enough with your categorizing, with your sorting. Enough, enough, enough. Feed my sheep. Stop projecting yourself, Simon Peter. If you love me, feed my sheep. Don't get stuck in your guilt. Yeah, you messed up, Peter. But there's a God who's way bigger than all your mess-ups. There's a God who's way bigger than all of your errings, all of your all the worst corruptions of the best. We have a hymn in our book, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. Grace greater than all the brokenness, all of the pain that can trap us. There is a God at the end of the day, at the end of the cloud, at the end of your despair, in the darkest point when you feel overwhelmed, there is a God who will turn your mourning into laughter. There is a God who will invite you to the beach and feed you with bread and fish. Because God does not see you in the categories in which you continually see and judge yourself. God sees you as someone 
who is both struggling to survive and making so many miserable uh, mistakes in that way, and someone who is deepening their understanding, having their eyes opened again and again, scales falling off as we learn deeper and deeper the truth of the depth, height, breadth, width, all those things of God's love. I remember the day. I remember the day that I sat down on some steps in front of my friend's apartment because I couldn't get in. It was locked. And I sat there and I was thinking about what I just heard in a, in a message at a chapel at seminary. And it struck me that if a human parent can still love you, even when you've made the biggest mistake, or maybe a human parent can receive you back, even when you've fallen from their uh, grace. And we hear these stories again and again, and, and I'm not saying it's everyone's experience. But it was my experience. I don't remember what it was, mom and dad, but um, there was something where I just felt this sudden like fear that I was going to say something that was going to suddenly make you be like, oh, Joel, you just, you're, you're too far off here. And you didn't. And I went back to the steps. And I wanted to get into my friend's apartment. But I couldn't. And it was a good thing, because I sat there on those steps and I thought, if my parents could do that with me, How much more could the creator of all things receive me, see me, love me, just as I am? And I wept to know that no matter what I think of myself, no matter how far I might stray, that underneath it all, there is a love which can carry me. And for those of you for whom that is not the case. Maybe a parent or a loved one has not unconditionally accepted you. And I'm so common. Know this, that the depth of that pain is no match for the depth of the acceptance and love of the God who made you and sees you who you are. And that's the truth of this table. That's the truth of the breakfast that we're gathered around. That's the truth that we eat and drink. This table is, by early Christians, was called an agape feast. It was a table where they said to each other, I love you. Where they passed the bread and passed the cup and said, Jesus told us to love one another and to feed the sheep. And they literally fed one another And they literally took the surplus and brought it out to other people. And they were excited because community had no limit. Because the Spirit is love. Because God sees not as we see, but with the depth that transcends all our either-ors, all our false dualistic judgments, and sees us beloved 
changing and constantly held in that loving, compassionate gaze of our Creator.